Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. We actually help those sellers deliver that sort of pay on terms offering to their customers. And we automate all of the collections activities, all the production of the invoices, making sure that the contract pricing is correct on the invoices. We deal with any bad debt risk and we also extend working capital to the sellers so that they can improve their order to cash cycles. That was Brandon Spear, the CEO of TreviPay, and he is our special guest this week. This is episode 84 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. And hey, before we get started, if you happen to office in Houston, Austin, or North Texas, check out Fuse Workspace, where their mission is to help others do more. Check them out at FuseWorkspace.com. Okay, back to the show. Brandon grew up in South Africa and completed college in electrical engineering. He moved to the U.S. about 15 years ago and is currently based in Overland Park, Kansas. TreviPay has had some major significant changes in the past year, and Brandon and I discussed those, which include the rebranding of the company from MSTS to TreviPay and the acquisition of the company by Corsar Capital. TreviPay is a business-to-business payments company, and they focus on the seller and help them grow their business through the extension of payment terms to their clients. Brandon is an avid sports fan and specifically a Kansas City Chiefs football fan, which of course has come with its ups and downs over the last two years. On the professional side, leadership development is one of his primary passions. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Brandon. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Well, Greg, thanks for having me back again. I appreciate having the chat with you today. Absolutely. So before we dive in, just a little update for our audience. You were here before. So back on episode 10, which was in March of last year, we're now on episode 84. So we've had a few in between. We've had quite a few changes at your company since we last talked. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to to have you on again. Obviously, since March, we've had the pandemic, which has accelerated. So we'll touch on that a little bit. MSTS is now TreviPay. So you've rebranded. So we'll touch on that. And then also the acquisition that's happened. So we'll touch on that as well. So before we get into all of that, let's talk a little bit about you. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Of course. As you mentioned, my name's Brandon Spear. I actually, as you can probably tell from the accent, didn't grow up in the US. I grew up in South Africa. I've been in the US for the last 16 years. By training, I'm a, an electrical engineer, but really been in software and technology businesses for most of my career. I'm currently based in Overland Park in Kansas, which is where our, our head offices are for TreviPay. And uh, we kind of picked the perfect time to move to Kansas City, to be honest, with two years after we arrived here, the Royals won a World Series. And obviously, we've had the Chiefs be in two Super Bowls and win one of them. So it's been a pretty cool time to be in Kansas City. Yeah, maybe we should touch on that last Super Bowl later. <laughs> I know you're a big sports fan, so uh, maybe that'll come up later in the conversation. 
Great. So let's talk about TreviPay. I think before we talk about the rebrand and the acquisition, maybe sort of set the stage and let the audience know exactly what TreviPay does. Yeah, sure. Perfect. So we're a a business-to-business payments company, and we really focus on the seller. So the sellers are our primary customer, and we are all about helping the sellers grow their business through the extension of payment terms to their buyers. So generally speaking, sellers will more often than not have some sort of payment terms offering for their business buyers. But increasingly, with the changing nature of distribution channels, with the shift to more business-to-business commerce taking place online, uh, or just geographic expansion, it can cause challenges for a lot of the sellers that we work with. So we help through a combination of technology, services, and working capital We actually help those sellers deliver that sort of pay on terms offering to their customers. And we automate all of the collections activities, all the production of the invoices, making sure that the contract pricing is correct on the invoices. We deal with any bad debt risk and we also extend working capital to the sellers so that they can improve their order to cash cycles. Okay. Are there certain segments or verticals that are better for others or is it basically any seller? Yeah, good question. So it can really be any seller. Generally speaking, any seller that is selling to business customers will have these sorts of challenges. Where we've had the most success in the past in terms of acquiring new customers and helping service new customers has really been in manufacturing and retail and some aspect of transportation. So those, the nature of those supply chains and the way buyers and sellers interact with one another has And also some of the changes that we're seeing happening in those industries, I think has been a catalyst. But we've acquired customers in high tech, also manufacturing, but specifically in high tech. Uh, We've acquired some customers in in healthcare. So there's a really pretty interesting cross-section of sellers that we work with. Okay. Is it a SaaS-based fees that someone pays or how is the model? Yeah, good, good question. So everything we do is as a service. So all of our technology is based in the cloud. And then uh, we provide it as a, our service cost is a transaction fee that we charge to the seller. And that is an all-encompassing fee that includes access to the technology platforms that we provide, as well as all the services that we wrap around it. And it also includes the, the working capital, the, the funding of the float. So typically, the sellers we work with are getting paid in two days. And usually the buyers that they are extending terms to have 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, perhaps even longer. So our transaction fee varies depending on the amount of time or the time difference between when we pay the seller and when the buyer's invoices are due. Okay. Okay. How big is the company? The company is just over 600 people, you know, right around $100 million in in revenue. And uh, we operate in North America, so US, Canada, Mexico. We're in 19 countries in Europe, and we're also in Australia and New Zealand. We have about 80 people in Europe and about 45 people in Australia. Okay, okay. So you brought up something I wanted to touch on and and dive a little deeper is there's been a trend across all spaces and industries, I think, of going more digital, especially in the last, I would say, 12 to 15 months with the pandemic. How has that changed your business? Yeah, fantastic question. So we've certainly seen a tremendous acceleration in the amount of digitization and, and automation that companies are 
bringing forward it. If I were to characterize it, I'd say that in a lot of ways, the pandemic has probably pulled forward some of those programs three to five years. And so that's had a very positive side effect for our business because a lot of these companies have had to react and adapt quickly. And they didn't necessarily have the internal capabilities or skill sets to be able to move as fast as they need to. So we actually, from a new business point of view, we had a remarkably strong 2020, the strongest year in our history in terms of new business and new customer acquisition. And I think a lot of it is a consequence of those accelerations in in automation and digitization. Okay. Do you think that the pendulum of so much being digital is going to kind of swing back a little bit once everyone starts returning to offices? Or do you think people are going to return to office as much? So it's a great question, you know, and it's one that as a company, we're also, frankly, working through, you know, what is the right office model for us? I do think that there will be certain roles, certain positions that make more sense to have in the office. Some of the the feedback we've gotten from our staff, which is kind of the best way for me to answer this question, is that a lot of the staff members that we have really are not well set up to be able to work from home. In particular, I'm talking about some of our call center and support staff that don't necessarily have a separate office or a dedicated room or even things like a dedicated desk and chair. So we've taken steps and measures to try to help our teams with that. I'm sure other companies have as well. So I think there's going to be roles that will make sense to be back in the office. There will also be roles which make sense to remain remote or for a large percentage of the teams to be remote. Specifically for us, our software engineering teams and our technology teams have been able to adapt really easily to working remotely. In fact, I think a lot of those, you know, we were doing a lot of that before the pandemic even happened. And so we think a, a hybrid is probably what the answer is going to be. In terms of your question about how does that ultimately impact the sorts of services that we offer, I think the the trends that were set during the pandemic are going to shape our lives going forward. I think the no one is going to want to ever be in a situation again where you had you weren't adequately prepared for having to pivot to having your teams work remotely or where you had very manual processes that were exposed when those teams had to go remote. And so I think that even although some businesses are at different stages of their evolution, I think most companies from an overall risk management and business continuity planning point of view are going to want to automate more rather than less and and be more digital so that if anything like this, God forbid this doesn't happen, but if it does, if anything like this happens again in the future, that companies are better prepared. Right, right. I agree with you. Well, let's rewind the clock a little bit and go back to say that uh, maybe it's the the March April timeframe of last year. Maybe right after you were on the show at that time, you were part of World Fuel Services Corporation, and I believe it was around the July timeframe when the acquisition happened. Can you maybe talk about maybe what led up to it and how it happened and sort of what's going on since then? Yeah, sure, of course. So. Yeah, we were in the middle of getting that transaction done, you know, when the pandemic really started in earnest at around the yeah, end of March. And uh, back to your question around why, you know, our business is principally a, a fintech business. We operate in, in a variety of different industries. And as the business had been growing, and we'd really been growing quite nicely over the preceding four years, the nature of the new customers we were acquiring and, and where those customers were coming from 
was just increasingly divergent with uh, World Fuel's overall strategy. And so ultimately, we really weren't a necessarily a good fit. So the transaction was or carving the business out made sense from a World Fuel point of view. I think the obviously the timing of trying to get a transaction like that in the middle of the pandemic was particularly challenging. But we had a, a very resilient and very uh, committed partner in Corsair Capital who, who really stayed the course and were able to work through all of the uncertainty and all of the complexity of the pandemic to ultimately get the transaction done. So the deal was signed, as you said, in July. The deal closed at the end of September. And so we've now been a part of Corsair Capital for the last six months. I guess it's almost going on seven months. And uh, it's really been a, a fantastic working relationship that we've had with them. We've always been very aligned on where the company is going and what the resourcing requirements for the continued growth of the business are. And so they've been a fantastic partner to me and to the rest of the leadership team in helping us really prepare the business for continued acceleration, for continued growth. And so it's been a really fun experience working with the Corsair team so far. Okay. I actually talked to a, a CEO not too long ago who did an acquisition and they actually did the entire thing without meeting the company that they bought in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to even fathom that that would be possible, but it certainly has happened. I mean, we we were fortunate enough to meet the Corsair team in November and January, so November of 19, January of 20. But after we had those two sessions with them, every other interaction we've had for the last 14 months has all been via Zoom. So it's been incredibly unusual. Even all the due diligence activities, and you can imagine those, a big chunk of those are typically done on site, even down to all of the actual physical signings that had to happen, all done virtually. So remarkable and also pretty complicated to get transactions done in the last 14 months. Absolutely. So the deal closed in the September timeframe. And then a few months later, I guess it's been relatively recently, you rebranded to TreviPay. So maybe maybe start out by telling us where the name TreviPay came from. Yeah, sure. Of course. So naming a company is, is honestly one of the, I think, the hardest things to do. Because on the one hand, you want to reflect your history and the origins of the business and where you came from. And on the other hand, you want to make sure that the brand represents and the name represents where you're going and how you see the future. And so that was the challenge that was presented with us trying to do the rebrand. So we picked TreviPay specifically because if you've ever traveled to Kansas City, it's known as the city of fountains. In fact, it's got one of the largest number of fountains for a city of its size anywhere in the world. So there's a tremendous number of fountains here. So having the name of a very famous fountain we felt made really good sense to reflect our history and the origins of the business here in Kansas City. In terms of then specifically selecting Trevi, what we loved about that is firstly, it's international and we're an international business. So we liked the flavor that that brought. And then secondly, the Trevi fountain in Rome is at the confluence of three streets. Now that hence where the Trevi comes from, where the name comes from. And so as a Consequence of that, it really reflects very well the three-party relationships that we facilitate. So we're obviously helping sellers interact with their buyers. And so there's a three-way interaction that's occurring there between us, the seller, and the buyer. 
And so we felt that fountain that is bringing those three parties together or those three roads together in Rome and, and in our world, the three parties was a really good metaphor for what we do. What we also loved about it, obviously, is that cities of the ancient world, they really grew and flourished on the basis of how well they could provide water to their citizens. And obviously, the aqueducts would bring the waters to the fountain. The fountain was a, a source of water for the local population. And in a lot of ways, the lifeblood, what brings life to the customers we work with, to the sellers we work with, is working capital to help those businesses grow or to help them deploy their capital in, in other areas of their business, not necessarily in their receivables. And so we felt that analogy and that metaphor also worked beautifully, that we're helping to provide the lifeblood of working capital to those business-to-business -business relationships. Wow, that's a fascinating story. I love to hear the, uh, some people take a lot of time and effort and think through like you just did and laid that all out. Other people just it was the name of the dog or you know, something like that. So it was really fascinating to hear that backstory. Tell us a little bit about what differentiates you from your competitors out there. Yeah, sure. So I think there's a couple of key things. So the, the first one is everything we do is in a white-labeled fashion. So we do everything on behalf of the sellers we represent. And so what's important about that is that when a seller brings a buyer to us, we don't view that buyer as a customer that we now have that we can go and market and sell other things to, or if we provide a line of credit to that buyer, that that line of credit can be used at any one of the suppliers we work with. So the lines of credit that we provide, the branding of invoices, the way we answer the phone, everything is in the name of the sellers that we're representing. And the reason that's important is if you go to, a, at least in our opinion, if you go to a seller and say to them, I would want you to entrust me with your very best customers. Typically, a seller's very best customers are the sorts of customers that qualify for payment on terms. And if you go to them and say, I want you to entrust those relationships to me, then in our opinion, you have to do this on a one-to-one -one basis. You can't then expect sellers to hand over the keys to their customer's kingdom, so to speak, if you don't have that sort of commitment back to the sellers, that those relationships that you establish will be unique between that seller and, and that buyer. So the white label aspect is a huge part of what we do and what really separates us from a lot of our competitors. One of the other key things that's really different about how we operate is, is that we provide a tremendous amount of flexibility to both the buyers and sellers in terms of how they reimburse, how frequently we invoice, how uh, what the different payment terms are. So for example, sellers can choose to be reimbursed on day two, on day seven, on day 14, literally any day they can choose to be reimbursed. That obviously affects how much working capital we deploy, it affects how much float is required to run the program. And so we give the sellers that choice and then on the buy side, we can invoice daily, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, and the buyers can have seven days to pay, 14 days to pay, 30 days, 45, 60, 90, and so on. So that combination of flexibility gives the sellers a really strong framework to create and deal with their customers, not as one homogenous group, but to be able to really segment the customers in there. So for example, your very best customer might get a monthly invoice in 60 days to pay, 
Whereas a brand new customer that you've not interacted with for a long period of time might get a daily invoice with, say, 30 days to pay. So that flexibility is one. And then the last area that I would emphasize is that everything we've built, our entire platform has been built in an API first way. And so what I mean by that is, again, because a big part of what we're trying to do is is enable the sellers to be more effective in how they deal with and extend terms to their customers. We expose all of the capabilities of our technology platform via API. And so what that lets a seller do is completely curate the experience for their particular buyers so that the buyers are not at any point in time feeling like they're linking out or connecting to some other third-party site, that it feels like it's a disjointed process, that the way you extend terms, the way the buyers can see their available credit lines, the way they can see what invoices they've paid, all of that is seamlessly delivered through the supplier's e-commerce platform, through their CRM platform, or ultimately through, if it's an in-store transaction. So that, I think, has helped us deal with some of the large enterprise customers that we have because they really want to control that end-to-end experience. If you're a smaller seller, we have portals for everything as well, so you can use the portal capabilities that we have, but a lot of the larger sellers we have typically want to control that experience. And then the last point I'd make is we're able to operate in a completely omni-channel manner, which is somewhat unusual for some of the other players in this space. So we can acquire transactions through an e-commerce website, which tends to be standard. That tends to be typical in, in our industry. But then what is atypical is we can also acquire those transactions directly out of an ERP platform. We can acquire them from a CRM platform. If the primary selling method or selling movement is via a sales channel, via salespeople, or we can ultimately acquire it via a physical point of sale if you're actually selling in store and you want the same capabilities delivered to your B2B customers. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So if a, a seller on boards and they provide you their customer base, does that customer base become part of a TreviPay network or are they dedicated solely to that seller? Yeah. So it's the latter. So when a seller brings a buyer or a buyer group to us and we onboard them, we establish a unique credit line that only works with that seller. So when we on on board buyer A and they're interacting with seller Z, we set up a credit line that is unique to that relationship. So that credit line that we establish, that buyer can't go and use that credit line at a different seller. So it's a one-to-one relationship, which makes us very different from a, a lot of our competitors. Okay. That's where I thought the answer was, but I just wanted to confirm that. You know this better than I do, but the B2B world, you know, payments and and that whole supplier and buyer segment is just, it's huge in North America, even bigger globally. Where do you think it's headed in the next couple of years? What's your thoughts on the the trends that are going to hit that part of the industry in the next two to three years? Yeah, so I think B2B has historically been several years, if not more than a decade, behind what consumer experiences are like. And in part, it's by definition, B2B relationships and the manner in which you buy is more complicated than B2C. You know, when I generally talk this through with potential clients or you know, analysts, whoever I'm talking to, you know, the best way to create an analogy for this is if you're a consumer, there's one decision maker for everything. There's the person who's making the purchase 
also controls the budget and how much they're willing to spend. So there's one stakeholder in a transaction. Obviously, in a B2B transaction, it's very rare that there's actually only one stakeholder. In most cases, there's multiple stakeholders. There might be a budget owner, there might be a procurement owner, there might be a subject matter expert, and then there might be the actual person who's affecting the transaction. So ultimately, B2B is more complicated, so it's a little further behind B2C. So back to your question, what we really see happening is a continued move to B2B to become less frictionful, more frictionless in the way these transactions are facilitated. And to really get that right, and this is kind of the mantra that we talk about a great deal, you have to align the way a company buys with the way a seller sells. And if you think about that challenge, at at face value, that sounds like something that might be simple to do. But in practice, it's actually really quite challenging for the sellers because every buyer they interact with typically has a different process or requires different data on an invoice, for example, or has a different method that they want to receive an invoice in. Everything from send it to me via email, send it to me via XML, load it into my portal. So all of that complexity creates lots of challenges for scaling and creating consistent processes for sellers. And so companies like ourselves, by inserting ourselves in the middle of those relationships, we can effectively build world-class solutions that align with the way the buyers want to buy and then also align with the way the sellers want to sell. And we create that bridge so that there's a scalable solution. So I think there's going to be more and more of that. I think that there's going to be a continued move to remove friction out of the buying processes, a continued move to to have more efficient sources of capital available to the sellers so that they're not necessarily using their own balance sheets to fund the working capital that's tied up in supply chains. I think that all of those trends are going to continue and more and more of these processes will become digital they'll become automated, they'll become more seamless. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. Tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got there as the CEO. Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, most of my uh, career has been in software and technology businesses. What brought me to the United States was I was working in a procurement marketplace. It was actually a procurement marketplace for the mining industry a company called Quadrum, and I had been running the Africa region. As you can imagine, for the mining sector, Africa is, and particularly South Africa, is a major player in the mining industry. And so I was running the Africa region. I moved to the US in in 2006 to become the, the COO of that business. Ultimately, that business was acquired by Ariba in 2011. Ariba was a large international player in procurement, and we were a good fit with them. Uh, At Ariba, I ran the Southern Hemisphere and Asia business until Ariba was acquired by SAP, which was about two years later. So in 2013, they were acquired by SAP. And then my last role at SAP is I was running really all of the customer management organization for SAP's cloud businesses, which was a combination of a reba of success factors, as well as uh, conquer a number of the, the acquisitions that they'd made. And then for me specifically, what I've learned about myself is that I tend to prefer working in smaller businesses where you can have more of a, of a general role rather than typically what happens in larger companies, your roles become more specialized. 
I also had felt that throughout my career, I've been able to be more impactful in smaller businesses. And so the next role for me took me to the time the company was called MSTS. And I really felt like the business there was a diamond in the rough, that it was a business that had tremendous potential and a great team, tremendous customers, and felt that it would be a, an exciting next step for me in my career. And so that was six and a half years ago. And we've really come a long way since then. We were able to grow the business significantly. We've obviously been carved out of World Fuel. And we're now in a position to really, you know, the world's kind of our oyster in terms of where we go next with the company. Right, right. Well, this next question, I know part of it in your, we're going to talk about your passion. So on the personal side, I know sports is a huge passion, but maybe tell us a little bit about what your passion is on the professional side. Yeah, so on the professional side, I think leadership and leadership development is perhaps one of the most important lessons I've learned throughout my career is is having a team around you that really is well-equipped to do their jobs and not just technically do their jobs, but know how to lead teams, know how to develop the people underneath them. That's where, at least in my opinion, you can have the most non-linear impact as a leader, where you can have a, a cascading effect and really change an organization. So leadership development is one of my passions and I've been fortunate enough to have a very strong people and HR leader who for the last five years has worked very closely with me building that out at, at Trevi Pay. Okay, okay. Well, we're about three months out from the last Super Bowl where <laughs> where the Chiefs the, the decided... Is, the stars are still fresh, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, the Chiefs decided to not show up. So I was curious if you've recovered from that yet. So partially, I would say, I mean, it was, it really obviously was a disappointment, but with the number of injuries that the team had, particularly on the offensive line, it was somewhat, it wasn't, I guess, a surprise. And, you know, obviously, whenever you play a team that has Tom Brady as a quarterback, I think you always have to be nervous. <laughs> yeah. And over the course of the last seven years since we've been in Kansas City, obviously, when Tom was at the Patriots, we played them multiple times a year. So this wasn't the first time that there was heartache at the hands of Tom Brady. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I typically ask a question around giving career advice, but I think I'm going to change it a little bit and ask, since you have 600 employees, what would your advice be to someone who's on day one with Trevi Pay? What would you tell them they need to do or should do to be successful there at your company? Yeah, I think the thing that we care about tremendously as an organization is members of our teams that really take it initiative and are proactive and are willing to, if they see something that's not working or doesn't work the way they think it should, to stick their hands up and say, hey, why don't we do it this way? Because more often than not, if the answer is we've always done it that way, then that's not a very good answer at all. So we're really looking for members of our team that are, are comfortable being able to, like I said, be proactive, be able to make suggestions, be willing to be agents of change. Because I think the, the fastest way for a company to not continue growing is to not continue to reinvent themselves. And so we want members of our team that help us on that journey. And that sort of thing come from the top. It's absolutely got to come from a grassroots level within the company. That's the best way to drive change. 
Okay. Well, Brandon, we've covered a lot of ground today about the company, the new branding, the acquisition, obviously a little bit about you personally. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, it's been fun chatting with you again, Greg, and hopefully the the Chiefs will be back in the Super Bowl again next year and we'll have a different result. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great, Brandon. So thank you so much for being on the show. I know your time is very valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. It's a real pleasure, Greg. It was fun chatting with you as always. Okay. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 